In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames und Messieurs, Ladies und Gentlemen, welcome to Censored, or Willkommen nach Censored. I am your host und sagen that I am Lloyd Maeve Houston. And I'm Eva Furtnach, and I love the introduction. Absolutely multilingual brilliance. This is only going to get more insufferable from here, as I am assuming that a not insignificant proportion of you have inferred from that opening. Our subject this time is a, a text, I think, kind of close to both of our hearts, which is 1972's Cabaret, which I've been told I can't sing for copyright reasons. <laughs> so um, it'll just be liberal quoting. But yes, leave your troubles outside. In here, life is beautiful. Even the hosts are beautiful, <laughs> um, which is why we operate in a purely audio. Yeah, we're obviously. not recording this because... <laughs> Faces for radio. Yeah. <laughs> this was a film that we both agreed from the very beginning, like the minute we sat down to sketch out what films we would look at, we were like, let's do Cabaret. <laughs> great yeah, like, they want to do it too let, let's check it was censored but if it was yeah. let's you know yeah there was almost even if it wasn't there was a moment where we were like but was it was it like even banned or anything it's like, we have to check we have to put this in <laughs> and luckily for us it was ish i was gonna say um uh, through the 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 good aus- uh, archival auspices of uh, of ifa we we in fact have a pretty clear picture of what was trimmed when so <laughs> Look forward to that. Because it was shown in Ireland in 1972, which is the year it's released in the US and everywhere else. But it's an 18s plus, which is the certification that's like, I mean, in Ireland, it's the highest. There isn't an X in Ireland. There's no like porno cert. (laughs) 18s only. So it, it is restricted viewing, very much so. Which, again, just seems so... A, disproportionate, and B, I don't know, censoring something that is about the curtailing of the f- freedom of expression. It's always a good way to make yourself look bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, cent- I mean, certification is an improvement on what was gone before. This is true. Yes, it's to be honest, I was surprised that this screened kind of at all and that the cuts seemed as thoughtful as they did. But I guess we can get into that. 
<laughs> so shall we first then say, why do we love Cabaret? In like five minutes or less, if we can manage that. <laughs> That's said like someone who just had to edit the, the, the Northern Ireland episode. <laughs> Not complaining. Well, for my part, Cabaret is, I, I have, you know, adored it since my teens. It was a, a very dear friend of mine to whom I owe a, a great deal in terms of my sort of cultural education, who I did youth theatre with, who showed it to me. And let's say that, you know, a, a great deal that would kind of click later was clearly making me vibe with this narrative of the diversely gendered and sexually diverse and permissive landscape of Weimar Berlin and its cabaret scene viewed through the eyes of, you know, our, our sort of ingenue, you know, kind of slightly slightly naive Brian in the film version. We're going to get into almost immediately a lot of confusion over how to refer to this dude because in different versions of this text, he is different people. <laughs> but yeah, ev- I mean, just everything about the the vibe of the club, like, but also the, the revisiting it this time particularly, the way in which it really evokes and deliberately leverages the visual style of German Expressionism, but also the paintings of, and drawings of Egon Schiele, and more and more things that this film vibes with are things that in life I've gone on to vibe with. Also, the tunes are just, <laughs> you know, what, yeah. it's Candler and Ebb, you cannot argue with. Like, ev- everything's a banger. And the problem is that some of them are things that you don't want to go out into the street singing. <laughs> You know, like you don't want to emerge from it kind of humming tomorrow belongs to me, <laughs> but but it's an undeniably effective number. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for me, the music was like, just got me straight away. The The song Money, Money, I could never get tired of that. I could literally <laughs> sing that any day of the week, do the actions, the whole thing. But also Liza Minnelli's hairstyle as Sally Bowles, just loved it. Always been a fan of extremely short hair on women. And <laughs> yeah, I was going to say no, no part of this rubbed off. None of it whatsoever. We, we, we were neither of us were affected in any <laughs> way by exposure to this. <laughs> this film. no, and also I've like always had a really strong interest in the aesthetic of the twenties and the thirties, and I just think it's fascinating how. The Sally Bowles character on screen has become so much part of what we think the 20s and 30s looked like. Like, it's Mm. such a visually influential depiction that publications of Goodbye to Berlin, the novel that inspired the screen and the play versions, have effectively someone who looks pretty much like Liza Minnelli on the front cover, you know, (laughs) because it just refers back to the original in a way that's unavoidable and I love that I love the way that these all these versions are moving around in space talking to each other and constantly being adapted and changed yeah that's what I love about it and the tunes and the gritty club and the legs it's all great (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's also I mean you know it's just sexy it's it's hot really it's hot it's hot stuff (laughs) it's catchy but also you know it's one of the great pieces of anti-fascist art of the late 20th century. You know, come for the chorus line, stay for the pretty probing examination of how fascism institutes itself and manufactures consent. Mm. And that's another element of it that is, you know, 
that remains chilling. Like it had been a while since I'd seen the film version, um, but I had the good fortune to go along to the um, London stage production that's currently on. And having just watched that before I was going back to the film, I was like, oh, you know, is this going to feel a bit sort of lukewarm and like pulling its punches um, when I returned to it? And no, it yeah. it really doesn't. <laughs> it did, you know, quite literally, there are several sequences where people are like viciously beaten and like you know, interspliced with like the whole kind of thigh slapping kind of like it, oh, the way... The way it uses the club to do social commentary is like it, it ruined me for other musicals. <laughs> and how it uses the uncommented on visuals as the characters are walking around. There's various flags, there's posters, there's all the paraphernalia. Radio broadcasts as well, the kind of like the way it leverages the German language to communicate certain things. Yes. I thought that was really, like, for me, the watching of it this time, I was thinking about, which is something I've been thinking about lately, is how material from American movies and American Broadway stuff is written by a lot of, you know, Jewish emigres or their descendants, a lot of whom are deeply familiar with German as a language, you know, like, have had personal experience of it. And how that must have felt to make a piece of art with a language that you knew, but a language that represented the genocide. I mean, just all of that, I was like, wow, this is a whole other level now because it's something now that people would discuss very explicitly as problematic about a piece of work that, you know, that they had reproduced the language of, you know, the genocide, genocidal maniacs. So I just like that was just for me another piece where I was like, oh, this now has something new to say to me about how we talk about controversial stuff that happened to us and how do we reproduce analysis of it by using the original material. And yeah, if we extend censorship to just think about questions of, you know, the harm that can attend depicting certain things or like, you know, can you ever depict Nazi iconography in a way that doesn't facilitate counter-identificatory readings that actually make it celebratory rather than condemnatory or or whatever. Again, something I was going back to this with slight trepidation about was how it handled that. And like, it's so strategic about when you see a swastika Mm -hmm. and how the explicitly Nazi characters in it are depicted. And it's, yeah, it just, it's so deft and it knows exactly when to hit you and how. Um, You know, there's a danger when media depicts Nazism to that in order to represent the threat of fascism, it will unthinkingly replicate some of fascism's self-positioning as like extremely efficient and omnicompetent and, you know, ma- hyper-masculine and self-possessed and infallible. And this really kind of nails more of a sense of like, no, no, these are a bunch of like opportunistic upstart thugs who just kick the shit out of people. Yeah. And, you know, are boorish and and craven. Shall we talk about that hilarious uh, page from the censor's notebook? (laughs) Uh, Just to explain. So in the National Archives, there are the records of the film censor. And they comprise the kind of top level certification style records, which are very formal. But behind that, they created, as they sat watching the film, they had a notebook... (laughs) Issued by the civil service, I'll have you know. Uh, that was the front cover. Issued by the civil service. Um, a notebook and a pen. And they're just 
you know, roughly noting what they are looking at, what might be objectionable. So it's the kind of the process of the censorship is this particular notebook. And there was a very detailed page on cabaret, which <laughs> I gleefully sent to Lloyd. It was like, we're sorted. <laughs> yeah, I, I was d- astonished and delighted when, when this came through. What really struck me about it is how he, from the mechanics of the film censorship process, is how he's breaking it up into the reels, um, which as a viewer, you don't mm. see at all. You, you just see a continuous film. But he's like watching it in segments, which I find fascinating. <laughs> that he's yeah, yeah. Like so, the censor um, doesn't see the film beginning to end straight, but reel one, reel two, as they go through. It's like he's watching it on streaming. You know, it's <laughs> he's pausing it. Second screen content. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably going out for you know grab something to eat after two reels because he's a bit hungry. <laughs> yeah, it's such a different viewing experience, but the. What made me laugh about it, of course, was the red pen. There are red X's. Well, what do you think? Like, is is it... Does the number of them correspond to the intensity of the objection? Or is it each instance of the thing occurring? Because, you know, for example, there's Sally Baby, I think is the one kind of listed at what I'm assuming is like the 118th foot, maybe, or something. I yeah. don't know. And it's like three X's. And do we think that's like, no, 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 no. Or is that like, no, that time, no, that time, no, that time. Yeah, I'm inclined to think it could be where the cuts are being made. So it corresponds to, I want you to cut this and no, definitely not. Yeah, that was that was kind of my assumption was, yeah, where where the instance of the thing occurred, because there's. So, for example, syphilis, as anyone who knows anything about what I work on, you know, I'm delighted to see it getting a getting a look in. But yeah, so syphilis crops up twice in sort of dialogue, once during this kind of fantastically awkward English language class, like conversation class, where it's it's Brian, Sally, and this wealthy Jewish department store owner's daughter and this gigolo character on the make. And they're having this incredibly strained conversation. And then Sally, you know, drops in that she's just saw this, uh, this, you know, fantastic picture about syphilis. And, you know, uh, asking, like, is it true that you can get it through, uh, you know, through kissing? And the, the sort of heiress is like, yes, you can. And, you know, through uh, through sharing a teacup, just as like yeah. a teacup is being passed to her. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really brilliant stuff. I, I'm There's also a part of me that's like, Okay, was that damaged goods, do you think? Like, I, I, you, the film's actually quite good at pointing to stuff in, you know, the contemporary culture. There's a point where Clara Bow gets a shout out, if you remember, when they're out. Yes, the I know. I saw that. And I was like, woohoo! Yes, Clara hey, Bow! There yes. she is. Yeah. <laughs> On a boat. But, but yeah, so that first instance of syphilis seems to have been cut. But then there's a second point where Sally is like, saying how she batted off someone who was like chatting her up in the club she's like oh i told him i had the slightest touch of syphilis um, and that's allowed to stay so uh. it's really funny to see the notes so i presume as he's going through he's like syphilis well that might be a problem and mm. then he's like no it's probably okay so it gets a tick next to it if he's yeah, okay and- i mean looking at the other the other records in this particular book He has this tick cross thing going on elsewhere. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think now he doesn't always use red for the crosses, but yeah, I, th- I think it means cut. That would be my. Yeah, I would assume so. Um, so what we also get um, so fornication gets cut from that, that scene. Yes, you remember they're trying to uh, at the end of this conversation. Sorry, this is, I, I promise it won't just become like doing the movie. But at the end of that conversation about syphilis. Sally then says, and, you know, they list all these, like, you know, peripheral ways you can contract syphilis. And then Sally's like, and of course from screwing. And then, you know, because her it, colloquial English isn't good enough, the this character is, like, screwing. And then, you know, everyone tries to kind of gloss the word for her. And so fornication is one of the glosses that's given, but can't be mentioning fornication. fornication. I mean, it's a peculiarly old-fashioned word by 1972. <laughs> yeah, I feel like... One of the things that you kind of get a sense of through the layering up of ticks and crosses is that it's it's like if too much time is spent with the topic, he seems to get kind of uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, yeah, you can briskly, you know, blink and you'll miss it kind of have a brush with that. Or you get like one joke about sex, but you can't like have two, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he did say in an interview with a journalist that year, this month, actually, April 1972, that he looked at films as if, once again, this sounds very familiar, for previous censors, that, you know, it would be suitable for his children aged 10 to 19. And I'm like, but, like, there's a big difference between a 10-year-old and a 19-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't parent those two, the two ends of that pole the same way. Like, yeah, one is in university and one is in primary school. <laughs> Yeah. What is going on? Even though mm. he gives us an 18. So, like, a 10-year-old is not supposed to be watching this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I don't know what 18-year-old is going to be, you know, given head staggers by explicit reference to fornication. <laughs> They'd probably be like, what word is that again? I'd have to go look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the thing at 63? I can't... I can't Sally and Brian... In bed. Ah, Okay. Yeah. Sally and Brian when they get one of them in bed yeah so they they do end up in bed a few times like they're shown in the physical bed either Mm. naked semi-naked or about to get naked so yeah that that got a red cross so I suspect at least some of that was caught but the part that really jumped out for me with the three crosses and the two crosses it's all about the storyline involving Sally pregnancy and then an abortion yeah it's yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's not surprising, is it? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, it's not surprising, but it kind of is, given that in and around that storyline, we have a very... Not explicit in the sense of like we watch people add it or anything. A not remotely sort of discreet storyline about an emerging like slightly uncomfortable love triangle thruple that is heavily insinuated to, you know, kind of be on the cusp of culminating in a three way. And it being made equally clear that Brian has had sex with Max, this, you know, kind of very charming businessman type. And so, you know, given that. Uh, that you know quote-unquote homosexuality was as criminalized as abortion at this point i find it really interesting that it's you know it's hard to know whether that speaks to a kind of tacit tolerance Mm. on the part of the censor regarding it or a kind of assumption that like as long as it stays moderately euphemistic it's fine or or whether it's you know it is just a kind of straightforward like this is the more urgent issue about which i'm more morally Hmm. concerned but yeah it's, I, I find it really interesting that like you can't mention that sally is pregnant which like really must hobble the film like it like the last act must make no sense yeah and if you if they aren't talking about that baby if you take out the abortion like how they part and why makes no sense well i i had a question about this in my own head which was whenever you know because the way it's written up on this sheet it's just you know abortion there's a time code and then it's just abortion and two crosses Mm. and deleted i think is written also kind of alongside that now in my head i'm wondering because the word abortion is explicitly used in the script so so he sort of you know he says like did you 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 did it or you know that he says something that kind of alludes to it and then he explicitly uses the word Mm. abortion and you know so i'm wondering does this mean cut the word abortion but keep the kind of allusion to it? Or do we think the whole thing's mm. gone? Yeah, it's not clear from that. And also some of the contemporary media coverage they are talking about in the Sunday Independent. There's a journalist called Kiron Carty who is running a kind of one-man campaign to draw attention to censorship throughout this period. So he's kind of every week writing about it. And he mentions that Cabaret is passed with cuts, but he doesn't talk about how extensive Mm. those cuts are or the length of the film that was lost, which he does. That's how he talks about the censorship to the readers, which is like the way it worked. So he says, you know, like eight minutes of cuts or two minutes of cuts or Mm. whatever. So he's trying to inform people how... Here's how much movie you've been denied. Exactly. Yeah, which is like, it's the perfect way. It's like eight minutes. It's quite long, you know? Um, yeah. So it's a really good way of, of trying to raise the issue. But he doesn't say exactly how much of this was cut. 
I kind of suspect it can't have been too bad because he would have made a fuss about it otherwise. So maybe it was more that they cut the word and some of the discussion around it, but, you know, that the baby is still no longer there must have been left. Otherwise, the ending would have collapsed. Yes, so it seems to be mostly syphilis, fornication, a bed scene, and... Cuts around the abortion. And Sally's, like, pregnancy. And Sally's pregnancy, yeah. Presumably. Which is also something that, I mean, just by the by, listeners, that's also something that, like, the Irish Film Centre is often weirdly circumspect about. Just, like, just people being pregnant (laughs) on screen is, like, it's, it's more of an earlier concern, but, like, just acknowledging that, you know, like, discussing pregnancy at all. Mm, And, you know childbirth as well isn't it gone with the wind the childbirth scene is so yeah this is i suppose a later version of this weirdness around reproduction if you saw cabaret in ireland in 1972 um, and want to write in um, and let us know uh, that would be amazing i mean the problem is that in the two documents that are left in the archive it doesn't give the length cut so we can't Mm. estimate how much proportionately of the film was actually cut. Although it's a great document and a very revelatory, at the same time, you're still left with questions about the actual cinema experience after the cuts have been mm. implemented. It's a very interesting, again, example of how, you know, censorship exists at the intersection of various other legal and, and non-legal regimes around w- what is being regulated in Ireland at this time, which... Yeah, on both sides of the border includes abortion and queerness, yeah. <laughs> you know, both, both as, as criminalized acts. So it's it's partly why I am surprised at like there not being more explicit cuts at, you know, the the gender nonconformity and the kind of same sex intimacy in the film, or at least allusions to same sex intimacy in the film. Because, you know, 1972, we're not even at the point. I mean, we've had partial decriminalization in 1967 of, of consensual male same-sex sex over the age of 21 in the UK, but that's not been extended to the north of Ireland, for instance. You've not even yet had the kind of Save Ulster from Sodomy campaign really kick off. Of course. <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, the DP, they, they know how to do a slogan. <laughs> I'll give them that. But, you know, and, and Jeffrey Dudgeon's sort of, you know, activism and the NIGRA, their, their work around this, it's not until 1982 that there's legislation in the north. Mm. It's not until 1993 that decriminalization occurs in the, in the South Republic. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, so it is strange, yeah. isn't it? And also in the context of what's been banned at that time, right, film wise, the censor banned loot which is a screen version of Joe Orton's play and which is, you know, deeply queer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, obviously some versions of gay life on screen are unacceptable still within the censor's ambit at this point. So, like, it is interesting to know exactly how people saw it. And I think, like, Kieran Carty's writing in the Sunday Independent every week and he's trying at this time to like really draw attention to you know the process actually so he has this great thing every week he lists (laughs) um movies going before the appeals board so something that got rejected and is being appealed so he lists that and then he lists movies shown in dublin the title of the movie 
its certification, its age rating, so 16s, 12s, whatever. And then he says whether it was cut or not. Um, and there's a really great, great one where it's called the Anderson Tapes. I don't know what it is. Never, never saw it. Ooh. And he lists it as over 18 appeal, which means it was rejected and then passed on appeal. And words, Jesus Christ cut. So he's like, so he puts that into the newspaper. So if you went to see the Anderson tapes, you'd be like, well, it's missing the swears. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a really important campaign, I think, because he, he does the best part, though, which you love. He goes to <laughs> famous directors and he tells them about the Irish censorship regime. Because, of course, they didn't know who who's going to know the details. I mean, yeah. no, no shade to, to Ireland, but it's not exactly a, a key market for, for anyone. Really. Exactly. I mean, why would Federico Fellini know anything about how Irish censorship <laughs> works? So Kieran Carty goes and interviews him, tells him exactly how it works, and then prints his outraged responses. <laughs> um, so I just like it's, it's this series throughout April of him interviewing these famous directors and producing under their you know Federico Fellini says this <laughs> just brilliant <laughs> and it actually culminates with the the new censor is Dermot Breen he's appointed in 72 and Kieran Carty actually goes to interview him in the censor's office and he writes a great piece Ooh. all about like how fun so w- would he have taken over after cabaret no was I think passed, or is this one of I think he's certifying in cabaret yeah okay and what 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 do we glean about Breen? Well, he is actually the first censor with experience in film. He used to manage a movie theater. Okay. And he It's a start. Yeah. And he started the Cork Film Festival. Okay. Yeah. So he's quite There we go. He's quite into okay, it. Okay, well it, it makes slightly more sense maybe how he approaches the the kind of cutting of this then. Yeah. And I, I think actually that up to April that's the only one that's caught you know in a serious way like that's in the okay. new releases so he is very much more open and he talks to Kieran Carty about his work and it's an attempt I think by the censor's office to seem less like dictatorial mm. and remote it's funny what happens when you let people actually like care about a medium you know <laughs> oversee it right <laughs> people who have been explicitly chosen because they're like ambivalent at best about it <laughs> yeah i think it does it must mark an important change within the government that they are willing to appoint somebody like that because this is the sort of mm. it's a very small kind of minor appointment in many ways so it's within the gift of the government this isn't you know yeah. it isn't open to massive competition so it clearly when they appoint someone like breen they are trying to make a statement about the future of censorship and that it will mm. be different and the fact that he lets people into the office and talks to them. I mean, he must have spoken to ministers about that before he did it, you know. Yeah. So, like, because it's such a big departure. So it's clearly that although there are cuts being made, things aren't quite like they used to be, I suppose. Or at least there is an opportunity to have a dialogue about cutting Mm. as opposed to it just 
No one knows what's caught and why. It's pretty cool. What's the name of the book that collects your man's writings? Because it's got a quite a fun oh, title, yes. doesn't Kieran it? Oh, yes. Kieran Carty's sort of yeah. memoir essay collection is Confessions of a Sewer Rat. There we go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's that's one for your, your stockings. Look, was, was this partly just an exercise in us having an excuse to, to rave about how good Cabaret is? perhaps yes but also i mean it does you know it, it's it's especially watching the film sort of back to back with with going to see it on stage like it's it's fascinating the life that that text has lived and the kind of contexts it's spoken to you know to to be this kind of set of sort of loosely connected novellas and stories in the 30s that I'm assuming run a file of print censorship, right? I'm, I'm remembering. Oh, that, right? absolutely! Yeah. yeah, I did an episode on Goodbye to Berlin with Jonathan yeah, yeah, Kemp. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely banned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, to, to that that suppression into you know a kind of stage version. So it's a play called I Am Camera in the sort of fifties, and then it's the stage musical in the sort of sixties, which sanitizes certain elements of the sort of source material sally is is english in the stage version which is what the figure who sally was based on you know was she was this english slightly down at heel aristocratic figure with aspirations to be on the stage or whatever but you know cliff becomes this sort of straight american kind of quite square-jawed type who is slowly politically awakened through the through the course of the thing and becomes frustrated with sally's glibness so then the film version kind of wants to like fix that sort of straightening out of stuff mm. like it, it sort of requeers it by by you know making cliff brian and making him much closer to sort of isherwood's own sort of sexuality and stuff and now you've got you know this kind of current london stage version which is you know um <laughs> but put it this way if you if you kind of consult the program you know every, everyone's pronouns are listed and there's not a lot of he him <laughs> in that program you know it's it's a really exuberantly queer rendering of it not just in the sense of who's cast in it or who's depicted but like it's a queering of the show in really fabulous and, and chilling ways I, I was brought to see it by someone who's you know n- near dear and, and, and queer to me and yeah by the end just like ugly crying <laughs> there's there's no better musical about genocide and that is a very <laughs> weird thing to be able to say about what a strapline um, I mean yeah, there are things that this production did with recostuming a cast that has been very legibly gender diverse into these increasingly conformist outfits, these sort of loose fitting, ugly brown suits that also evoke tacitly images of like piles of clothing in the camps. And so I, like it, it's just in terms of communicating the ways in which genocides in, encompass not simply the extermination of lives but extermination of ways of living and the way that all of those things are interconnected and kind of processes that that might accelerate and intensify and as as i say going back to the film i was surprised how much of that is kind of latently present right and all the kind of interstitial like interscene stuff and you know these sort of really haunting ta- like the way that Fosse uses stillness mm. in that film is crazy like the the sort of tableau of like violence you know there's no sort of murdered communist that they pass on their way off to you know kind of have a little jaunt around in the countryside with this wealthy magnate guy who wants to take them off to Africa which also feels like it's a commentary on kind of you know like Eritrea and Italian fascist expansion in Africa North Africa it's really good like if, if somehow you have not watched Cabaret <laughs> 
watch cabaret no <laughs> no straight away it's just it's all so good it's so good i mean if yeah everyone should watch it it should be like on the curriculum or something it's like one of those films that well it's just if they're gonna make you know i i, I don't know i i i actually don't know how the the republic compares on this but you know like in the north and in in the uk more broadly like you know one you study nat the rise of the nazis so many times oh, endlessly. like in history oh just over and over again and you know hell that that is a lesson that bears being repeated <laughs> you know like we that you, yeah we, we can't be too frequently told not to sleepwalk into fascism <laughs> you know but yeah just like just watch this film it's like it, it'll it'll do it in you know like two hours yeah. <laughs> and i think having <laughs> Like having listened to my daughter talk about how like they they have to learn about the war, obviously, mm. um, and it's quite clear from the way it's being taught in schools now is that there is a tendency among some people who you know like war as a topic who aren't attracted to the topic and all of that mm. that that's why they're kind of interested in it, and I just think that. A film like this would offer really good corrective if you were inclined to find war really exciting. And, you know, learning about the history of war is sexy. Yes, but like this side of it, like what the violence does rather than just going off in fronts and tanks and all of that. I'm sorry to say stereotypically boy kind of history, (laughs) you know, it would allow a different way of thinking about war i think that might be quite congenial for people who weren't into the tanks well just yeah and just you know the that it has a cultural dimension that you know it, like that how you manufacture consent for conflict is done culturally that how you you know select communities and ethnic groups and peoples and cultures for extermination plays out in the realm of culture you know and plays out in the realms of, you know, arbitrating permissible and impermissible discourses. And yeah, you know, none of this isn't connected to to censorship and to senses of the sayable and the unsayable and how that produces, you know, the grievable and the ungrievable and the killable and the, you know. Sorry, listeners, this, this, <laughs> this, this, this is again gone from kind of frothy cabaret chat to, you know, uh, things that may have uh, you know c- well you don't need us to tell you the contemporary resonances of elements of this so yeah you know <laughs> just like keep your eyes and ears open and say things and you know <laughs> pay attention do something sorry, sorry listeners again we don't mean to slowly radicalize you <laughs> yeah <laughs> we don't mean to end up in this place at the end of most episodes but it's just it just happens <laughs> that way okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's our brand yeah.